say the game is getting old. Monday morning and your coffee's cold. Life is not what you want. Hi everyone and welcome to a new direction. It is me, Jay Izzo, and as I say every week. I have another great show because I do. I have Corey Phelps with me. He is author of this book that I know that you cannot see. It's entitled Cracked It. And I'm going to tell you right now that this book, Cracked It, is outstanding. How to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultants. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care what the problem is. This book is going to help you solve it. Okay? It is absolutely going to help you solve problems. And it is the most comprehensive, I call it a toolkit uh, about problem solving. That's what I call it because it is absolutely, it's changed me. It, it's going to change you in the way you think about it. And Corey's going to help us do that. Actually, I should say Dr. Phelps, but he's going to let me call him Corey because, eh, you know, he's kind of a cool dude. And so he lets me do that. But let's do what we do every week, right? And what do we do every week? We check in with you to find out in the four areas of your life, how are you doing? Right? We check in that. I believe that we're four part people. We're physical people, we're mental people, we're emotional people, and we're spiritual people. So let's check in a scale of one to 10, one being miserable, 10 being outstanding. Where are you at physically? How are you feeling? Right? Are you four? Are you seven, six, three, two, five? What's that number for you today? What, what is that? What is that number? And then let me ask you a question why are you that number? Right? Have you not been eating right? Have you not? Uh, have you not been exercising like you should? Have you, have you not been doing the things? That, you know, I have a friend. His name is Dr. John Hansen. He's a medical doctor in, in Omaha, Nebraska. And you know what he would tell you? He said, have you, have you been getting your checkups, right? Have you been regularly checking with your doctor to make sure that you're doing all the things that you should be doing, right? That's all part of that being healthy and living a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, folks, one of the things that we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about with Corey is, you know, we've made a huge, we got a huge misunderstanding between fat and sugar, Okay. Because everybody thinks it's all fat, but I got to tell you something, sugar's a problem. <laughs> He's got the proof, sugar's a problem. And yet we've been we've been accustomed to believing in something completely different and erroneous. So maybe we should cut out the sugar. So you got that number? All right, good. There's your physical number. Okay, how about mentally? Where are you at on that same scale, one to 10, one being miserable, 10 being outstanding? Where are you at mentally? And what do I mean by that? Well, you know what? We have two halves of our brain, right? We have a right side of our brain and we have a left side of our brain. The right side of our brain, you know, is our creative side. It's that side where, you know, we kind of enjoy things and we kind of like the fun and we kind of want to create and make things happen. And that's all part of problem solving, by the way, is that creation piece. And then we have that left side of the brain. That's the logical side where we have to, we try to put things linearly and we want things in a particular way in a format and an order, right? And we kind of want all that together, but we have two halves of that brain, all right? And we need to feed both halves of that brain. So what are you doing to feed that? What are you listening to? What are you reading? You know, a book like Cracked It is a great way to be working both sides of your brain because it's going to exercise really that logical side, but it's also going to give you some ideas creatively that you've not thought about in solving a problem. That's what makes this book great. This show is a great way to exercise both halves of your brain, but there's other ways too. You know, you could take up a new instrument. You could learn a new language. There are so many ways to enhance your brain and feed your brain and both sides of that. So how are you doing? And then, you know, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about changing whatever you're doing right now? All right. So you got that number. We got two numbers. We got a physical number. We got a mental number. Let's talk about that emotional number. And what do I mean by emotionally? Well, we're talking about, sometimes you'll hear people talk about emotional intelligence or an emotional quotient. What we're talking about here is we're talking about how well are you able to control your own emotions, right? Do the little things get to you? 
right? Or, or maybe, maybe it's those little things like, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and all of a sudden you have lost your mind, <laughs> right? And who hasn't done that, right? But how, how much better are you controlling that? And then there's another piece to it too. And that is, and, and Corey's going to talk about this, is how well are you able to, to really connect to others' emotions, right? Empathy is what we call that, right? How well are you able to understand the emotions of other people and what they're going through? That's all part of that emotional intelligence and emotional quotient. So on a scale of one to 10, one being miserable, 10 being outstanding, how well are you doing in that area of your life? Okay, so you got three numbers, right? So the fourth area of your life, spiritually. How are you doing spiritually? And what do I mean by that? Well, we all believe in something, right? Even, I don't care what it is. We believe in something. We have faith in something that's something beyond ourselves, right? We, we, we believe in, maybe it gives a sense of peace or a sense of joy. It could be nature. It could be karma. It could be a variety of things. It could be God, whatever it may be, something that you believe in, right? That you feel that gives you a sense of purpose or a sense of hope or a sense of joy, right? And I just want to ask you on a scale of one to 10, one being miserable, 10 being outstanding, how are you doing in that area, right? How's that working for you? Is it time to change? Is it something to change? Is it, you need to do something different? right? So you've got four numbers there, right? And think of those four numbers as the legs of a table. Because if, if, if tables, the legs are uneven with those four numbers, it's, it's kind of hard to eat off that table, isn't it? By the same token, if you're sitting in a normal chair and the table is way, way low, then that's a problem too. So we got to find a way to bring up that table, raise that table leg, raise that table up to that, to that area. It's really hard to get to a 10, but you know, you can bring yourself up little by little. I'm not asking you to get from a three to a 10 in any one of those areas of your life right now. I'm asking you to get from a three to a four or six to a seven, whatever that may be, all right? And that's what we're asked to do. And you know what? This brings me to my guest, uh, Dr. Corey Phelps. Dr. Corey Phelps is a professor of strategy, associate dean of executive education, and uh, Marcel Desautels at faculty fellow at the Desautels Faculty of Management, McGill University. Formerly a professor of HEC Paris, and the University of Washington. Uh, Corey holds a PhD from the Stern School of Business at New York City University. His research and teaching, which are focused on innovation and strategy, have received several prestigious awards. Corey travels the world as a keynote speaker. You're gonna love his voice, by the way. He's got a radio voice. He's got a face for TV, but he's got a voice for radio. I'm just telling you. He's a corporate trainer and a consultant to help organizations become more innovative and strategically agile. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Corey Phelps and Dr. Phelps, welcome to A New Direction. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience today. It's yeah. nice of you to say I have a face for television. I'm not quite sure that's true, <laughs> but I, I, I do like the fact that you say I have voice for radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you something. I don't mean that I don't want people to go all of a sudden think I got a bromance going with you here or anything right? or, or anything like that, but you're a good looking guy. I got to be honest with you. I mean, <laughs> I'm going, to, I'm going to have a lot of, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a lot of ladies. I know you're married. He's married, but I'm going to have a lot of ladies going, man, he's hot. I know that. I can already see that coming. Right. Uh, nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've got to do this. Listen, uh, I, I, Corey, Dr. Corey Phelps and cracked it. The book that I'm holding up that, uh, for those of you who will be watching the podcast cannot see, but it will be on be pictured. Uh, but everybody else can see who's watching live right now, uh, is brought to you today by our sponsor Endline business brokers and advisors. And they partner with business owners when it's time to sell their business. When it's time to sell your business, contact the professionals at Inline Business Brokers and Advisors. They're internationally known. Uh, they are literally the best. They are the experts. You can learn more by going to Inline.com, E-N-L-I-G-N.com. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors, wherever you're at in the world, 
they are the experts that can help you find the right realtor to sell your home or buy your home, no matter where that may be. And if you're in the Research Triangle Park area in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, they can help you find your home locally right here. So contact them just by going to lindacraft.com, L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T.com. And today's t-shirt shout of the week that I'm wearing live that everybody can see is from Yardology. That's right, Yardology. They do more than just landscaping. They know not just the study of the yard. They know your yard really, really well. And we want to thank them for sending us the extra large pink uh, t-shirt because they support breast cancer and they make a donation every year towards breast cancer. And so that's why they wear the pink t-shirts. And so we appreciate them for giving us the t-shirt the and the t-shirt shout out. They're a fabulous uh, landscaping company, whether it's for your yard or for a developer, they can help you with all your needs there as well. There we go. So Corey, the book is called Cracked It, and it's how to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultants. When I read this book, I, I was, I, I'm, I'm a consultant, but we all go, okay, problem solving. Isn't that something that just kind of comes naturally to us is to just solve problems? Why do I need this book? I think that's a great question that that cuts directly at the heart of why we wrote the book. One of the things that we talk about at the opening of the book is that we think that with most things in life, the more we do it, the more experience we accumulate it with, the, the better we get at it. And what the research tells us is that's absolutely not true. As human beings, we fall prey to a lot of pitfalls of, of problem solving. And that's why, like a lot of things, problem solving is a skill so it can be learned. So it's something that doesn't come naturally something that can be learned, which again is primarily why we wrote the book is to basically address this skill. So one of the things, and by the way, I enjoyed the book thoroughly. I really did. Thank and, you. and it, it, it's a great read and people, you can find this on Amazon. It comes in hardcover paperback and as well as a Kindle version. And uh, hopefully some, hopefully because of Corey's voice, they'll do an audio version of the book too. Um, but that's just me hinting uh, at, at that. <laughs> so uh, let's just jump right in to sure. the pitfalls of problem solving because one of, uh, as I was reading through earlier in, in chapter two and I was reading through the book and I was going through the pitfalls, I found myself, you know, chastising myself going, okay, you know, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. Oh, I've done that too. Right. Yeah. And so one of the, the big thing is, is the, the flawed problem definition, right? That we, yeah. we, we, we don't really define the problem well enough or we or we think we do but it's not really the right problem talk a little bit more about that sure so I, I think the way to illustrate this is with a story and story actually captures a few different pitfalls of problem solving including the one that you just mentioned about uh, poor definitions and this is a story about Ron Johnson and some of your listeners may be familiar with Ron Johnson because I'd say what he's probably most well known for is Steve Jobs create the Apple store which is one of the most successful physical retailers on the planet. What some of you may not know is that his background actually was before he came to Apple, he worked for Target. He was the, the head of merchandising and helped create Target what it is today, right? This uh, everyday low price, but merchandise that is either national or international branded. Right. Ron Johnson had this Midas touch, uh, showed that he was a tremendous strategist in the retail industry at Target, then at Apple. And then uh, a very mature department store chain in the United States, JCPenney, came along and lured him away from Apple because at this time, JCPenney had fallen on hard times. And as many of you know, the situation has only gotten worse. 
But when Ron Johnson, it was announced that he was going to take over JCPenney, the day it was announced, the stock price of JCPenney increased by 18 percentage points, which clearly said that investors loved the idea that this guy was going to come in and solve the problems that were facing JCPenney, primarily which was JCPenney was losing customers. They were losing customers either to online, to companies like Amazon, or they were losing customers to Target and other large box uh, specialty retailers in the United States. So Johnson officially um, on November 1st, 2011. In two months, he announces that he has the solution to what ails JCPenney. So in two months' time, he's able to figure out exactly what the problem with this century-old retailer is. And he has a, a launch event at New York City in January 2012 during the week where he says, here's the solution. He lays it out. He says it consists of four pillars. Number one, we're going to move to an everyday low pricing strategy. We're going to eliminate all this. And as some of your listeners know who've shopped at JCPenney, that's what JCPenney was. They were an aggressive discounter. So aggressive use of sales promotion. So Johnson says, we're going to eliminate that. We're going to everyday low prices. Number two, we're going to reorganize the merchandise. So being a traditional department store, you'd walk into JCPenney and you'd see men's suits. You'd see women's wear. You'd see kids wear and so on. Johnson's idea was, no, what we're going to do is create stores within a store. The idea of 100 boutiques. You'd walk into a JCPenney, you'd see a Levi's boutique, you'd see a Martha Stewart boutique, and so on. The third thing he did was, we're going to stop using the name Penny. It's old, it's outdated, so we're going to use JCP, and we're going to have a new logo. And as a result, we're going to have a rebranding initiative that captures these elements. The final thing that he did was, he got sales clerks out from behind the cash register and onto the sales floor. He equipped them with handheld tablet computers that had point of sale functionality. So you could take debit card or credit card on the floor, gave them new uniforms, t-shirt with the new JCPenney logo, JCP on it. So within two months, he says, this is the solution to the problem. And he immediately starts to roll this solution out across all 1,100 stores in the JCPenney chain. Within a few months, the results start to come back. Results are a disaster. So the first quarter final results, uh, he started to make these implementations. There's a, a large loss of about $55 million, and it just keeps getting worse. The losses mount, the losses mount. The stock price takes a dramatic nosedive. Same store sales fall from the year after these changes were implemented compared to the previous year by 25%, which is a dramatic fall off in same store sales. So what happened to a great extent was a few pitfalls. Number one, Johnson spent very little time trying to understand what the problem was that JCPenney was facing. He had some indicators, declining stock price, um, flat growth in revenues, small return on sales compared to their competitors, but he spent virtually no time really trying to understand and define the problem and jumped very quickly to a solution a single solution. He didn't bother with alternatives. He didn't bother to test thing. He came up with a single solution and he implemented it quite quickly. And that solution is, as I tell the story, has tremendous similarities to what he did at Target and tremendous similarities to what he did at Apple. In other words, he fell prey to another trap that we as human beings have when we solve problems. He reasoned by analogy. Mm -hmm. He said, look, I've, I've been at Target work there. I've been at Apple stores. I know it worked there. So if these aspects of the strategy worked at Target and they worked at Apple, 
I'm just going to assume that they're going to work at JCPenney. And as a result, I don't need to really understand what the problem is, why customers are abandoning JCPenney. I'm just going to move forward with the solution. I don't need to test it because I know it's worked in the past, and therefore I know it's going to work in this situation. So what he fell prey to were three primary traps of problem solving. Number one, poor problem definition. He did not take enough time to really understand what was causing JCPenney's declining performance. Pitfall number two, he reasoned by analogy. He looked at what worked for him in the past, previous two employers, and simply assumed it would work at JCPenney. And number three, he fell prey to the confirmation bias. Mm. People inside JCPenney were questioning his strategic solution. And he basically said to these people, you're either with me, you're against me. So I don't want any naysayers. You can leave the company. So anybody that suggested that he was on the wrong track, he either discredited them or he ignored them. And what this resulted in was a tremendous problem. Uh, he basically made the problem that JCPenney uh, was facing even worse. And after 18 months, he was fired. And this goes to the you raised at the, the top, which is this is a gentleman that spent over three decades working inside the retail industry in the United States. He had tremendous depth of experience. Yet when he encountered a problem at a century-old retailer, he fell prey to a bunch of traps that most human beings fall prey to. Definition, solution confirmation bias, and reasoning by analogy. So that story sort of captures many of the things that we do as human beings that lead us astray when we try to solve problems. I found Ron Johnson's story to be fascinating. And, and I, I, and you have several stories in this book. Uh, the book, by the way, is called cracked it, how to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultants. And, uh, by the way, available on Amazon local bookstore. If your bookstore doesn't have it, ask them why they don't have it and then tell them to get it, uh, because it should be on their shelves. And it should be facing out, by the way. As an author, I'm just telling you that's important. Have the book facing out. We don't want to just see the binding. We want it faced out because it's that good. When, I, when you were telling these stories, and I, I felt myself cringing because I felt guilty, and especially of one area. One of the areas has always been the confirmation bias area because I think we fall prey to that pitfall so easily that we think that our ideas and only our ideas are generally the best. And so what happens is we kind of don't pay attention to other people's ideas. Yeah. Well, I, what we try to encourage people on in the book and in our own teaching and consulting is fall in love with the problem, but don't fall in love with your idea for a solution. And, and mm -hmm. we give that advice mm -hmm. because we know that that's the, what happens is the exact opposite. Right. People tend to fall in love with their ideas for a solution. And if anybody comes along and starts to question it, what do we do? We dig our heels in, we right. defend it, we try to credit whatever uh, suggestions they have against our idea. So it's, it's human nature. And again, what we do in the book is we lay out this method and the fundamental idea behind the method is to push back against these pitfalls of problem solving, to push back against not taking sufficient time and not coming up with a, a sufficiently well-developed problem definition to push back against the confirmation bias, which means we often jump very quickly to thinking about only one solution, right. which closes us off to potentially better ideas that we may not have, but people working with us may have. So you're right, it's, it's something that, that human beings fall prey to, which again, I think is, is why we need tools, as you talked about earlier, yeah. to help us overcome these 
these pitfalls. Love it. We're talking with Corey Phelps, Dr. Corey Phelps. He lets me call him Corey because we're tight now. And uh, the, book is, <laughs> the book is entitled Cracked It, uh, How to Solve Big Problems and Sell Solutions Like Top Strategy Consultants. He's brought to you today by inline business brokers and advisors. Are you a business owner? At some point, you're going to need the services of an experienced business broker. Selling your business is a big decision. So why not make sure that you build your deal team, starting with the experts at inline business brokers and advisors, internationally known. They can help you. Jeff Snell and his people, I know them personally. They are the experts in the business selling field. You can find them at inline.com. That's E-N-L-I-G-N.com. And also, Linda Craft and Team Realtors, wherever you're at in the world. Linda Crafted Team Realtors can help you find your next home or help you sell your home. They can match you up with worldwide. They can match you up with the best realtors, whoever they are, wherever they're at in the world, and help you find the right people. As well as if you're in the local research area, Triangle Park, you can, uh, the greater Raleigh area, Durham, Chapel Hill, they they can help you directly right here. So check out Linda Craft and Team Realtors. You can find them at lindacraft, L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T dot com. I want to, before I go, before we go to the 4S method, because I, I, sure. we're, we're going to talk about the 4S method because the whole book kind of, uh, the way you've structured this book, at least in my opinion, you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it really is the, the 4S method after we get past the pitfalls is really the structure of the book and then everything kind of falls out of each one of those 4Ss is the way I've kind of, is the way I kind of saw how the book was structured out, which of course, would be so linear because you're solving a problem. <laughs> so, right, and you right. use the book, so it, it made sense. But I want to talk about miscommunication because it is a pitfall, and uh, the <laughs> and you call it case five: a fat chance for sugar is what yeah. it's actually called. And th- this this whole thing about sugar and fat and Eisenhower was fascinating. So. Let's talk about this pitfall of miscommunication because this is really easy for all of us to fall into. So why don't you go ahead and kind of relay the story and why miscommunication is such a pitfall. So for us, at the end of a problem-solving effort, you've hopefully come up with a solution, valuable solution. And usually in organizations, you an individual or a group doesn't have the power to implement. they got to convince other people which means they got to create buy-in. And this gets to, you've got to come up with a persuasive and compelling sales pitch. That's why we call the fourth S and the four S method selling. Um, and again, it comes down to how, how effective are you at communicating the solution? What we often find, and this is particularly of our, our MBA students, is that when we give them a case that, that has a problem, what they'll often do after they've come up with the solution is we'll invite them up in the class to present their solution and, and they'll spend a lot of time talking about how they arrived at the solution so that they tell the story of how uh, as we like to say and the story of how is well here's the problem that we took on here's how we thought about it here's the options we came up with here's the analysis that we did and so on and about five minutes into that approach storytelling the audience is half asleep because nobody cares about how the story of how, how they came up with the solution. What we want to know is why should we adopt this solution? Give us the, the core rationale, the core arguments, and provide support for those core arguments. That's the story of why. So in the book, in chapter two, we talk about the pitfalls, uh, fat chance uh, for sugar. We tell the story about uh, two, two gentlemen. 
Um, one gentleman is, is named uh, John Yukin, and the other gentleman is named uh, Ansel Keys. So Yukin wrote a book, and this is, gosh, it's been a while. It's been since the, the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm drawing a blank on the name That's of the good. book right now. Uh, but he, he, he wrote a book in which he marshals a bunch of evidence because uh, he's a scientist. Uh, and what he does is he basically demonstrates that he believes that there's strong evidence for a relationship between sugar in your diet and fat. Now, this book got a lot of interest back in the early 1970s, but then it sort of disappeared from the scene. Now, there's another gentleman who was sort of, uh, I would say, Yukin's nemesis, and this is Ansel Keys. And Ansel Keys has a different theory. And he's accumulated different evidence. And this evidence is about fat. And the argument, the more fat you have in your diet, the more that this is likely to turn into fat and cause uh, bad byproducts such as uh, arterial disease. And basically what it comes down to is you've got two different stories. You've got Yukon stories that sugar causes people to be fat and therefore uh, suffer from heart disease. You've got Keyes' story, which is, no, it's fat. What Keyes was extremely shrewd at was identifying who the key stakeholders were in the United States, such as President Eisenhower, such as the Food and Drug Administration, such as scientific bodies, and then basically manipulating the evidence to support his theory in a very convincing way. Whereas Yukin, who had a very difficult time, was quite awkward in terms of being interviewed in public, who didn't think of uh, his spreading his ideas strategically. So having very little insight in who the key stakeholders were, what he would have to do to convince those key stakeholders to buy into his theory. So what ended up happening is that you, you had a theory about from keys, fat leads to fatty tissue, which leads to heart disease that dominated thinking around the world from a dietary standpoint led to Food and Drug Administration recommendations about diets for human beings. And it's only really been in about the last 15 years that science has really pushed back against that and said, no, definitively, sugar is the key leading cause of people being overweight, which contributes greatly to heart disease. So it's really a story about a failure to effectively and persuasively communicate the solution. And in this case, it had dramatic negative consequences for, for the population of the United States because we paid much less attention to sugar than we did to fat in our diet. Yep. And it's come back and haunted many people. And only in the last, like I said, 10 or 15 years has you seen, have you seen a reversal of that. Yeah, you know, what I found interesting about the story, and here, here comes the researcher in me, right? Because I have these 15 graduate hours of statistics. And... And of course, when I, I'm, I'm reading, you know, you, you did such a thorough job. By the way, it's called uh, Pure White and Deadly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Pure White and Deadly. Um, what is that? What, uh, how sugar or something? Uh, I can't remember. How, how, how sugar is killing us and what we need to do yes. about or something like that. I think it's what yeah. it's called. Uh, anyway, so what I found interesting was uh, Keyes, when he was doing his research, he included <laughs> only countries <laughs> – that basically yeah. didn't really consume a whole lot of fat anyway because yeah. he left out Germany and France, which are the two highest consuming fat countries in the world, and yet they don't have the obesity that we have, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I, I, and, I, and, I, and I looked and I said, 
And then, of course, you know, uh, and this is not a political show. We're not a political show. But, oh, my gosh, you mean our government actually fell prey to somebody who better communicated something than somebody else, yeah. even though it wasn't true? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that happening. <laughs> well, just, just throwing that out there. <laughs> but, I mean, it is, it is. If you're a better communicator, right, if you can, even if the idea is wrong, if you're a better communicator, you can generally sell your idea. Absolutely. And it can lead to sometimes pretty disastrous consequences. Well, we get, we get, we get, we get a, we get a, 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 what is it? A false negative, right? It's right. Are we right? Because it's a negative and it's wrong, right? That's correct. It's right. It's false negative. And so then we got to overcome these pitfalls. Okay. So now we got to overcome these pitfalls and the three of you, by the way, uh, Bernard Garrett, um, Corey Phelps, who I'm talking to get the privilege of talking to and, uh, uh, Olivier, Olivier or Oliver uh, Sibone? Olivier, Olivier, Olivier Sibone, yeah. and um, okay. hopefully my French pronunciation is getting better. Uh, <laughs> Olivier Sibone, and um, uh, anyway, so they they all try wrote this book. I said co-author, but co-author means two, so I guess it's triauthored this book. And they came up with the four S method, which I want to talk about in terms of problem solving. So. Why don't you start by let's let's dive in and and explain to the listeners. Um, by the way, I need to just say, Israel, thank you for being the second most downloaded um, country in the world next to the UK. Um, you guys have been outstanding. Thank you for downloading the show regularly. Uh, but explain to the listeners what the 4S method is, what it means, and then let's let's just dig into that a little bit. Great. Um, so it's really a response. to that we spoke about just a few minutes ago. So poor problem definition, jumping to a solution, reasoning by analogy, and so on. So the 4S method starts, the first S is state. In other words, state the problem well. And in the book, we provide a framework, a tool to help people find problems well. We call it the Tosca framework. And I can come back and talk about that. So it says, don't resist the temptation to quickly jump to a solution. And Resist the temptation to jump your own pet favorite solution. So take some time, stop, and state what the problem is. And this is really a reflection of, I would say, a very famous Einstein quote, which is he said one time, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd take 55 minutes of it to understand and define the problem, and then five minutes to solve it. So that, that signifies the importance of taking the time to define the problem well. So in our framework, that's the state piece. The second S stands for structure. Once you have a well-defined, in other words, a well-stated problem, then what you need to do is you need to decompose that into potential solutions. So let me give you an example. Last week I was in the Middle East leading a workshop and I had people from different companies in this workshop and and one of the companies expressed that they had an attrition problem. So in other words, their employees weren't staying around as long as they would like. And I, I asked them, well, what level of attrition do you have? And the response was 20%. So we're losing about 20 of our percent, uh, 20% of our employees every year. Hmm. And the follow-up question was, well, what would success look like? What, what's a sufficiently low level of attrition? They said 5%. So for them, the problem is, how can we get our attrition level from 20% down to 5%? Now, that's the problem definition. Let's talk about the second piece, which is structuring the problem. Structuring is where frameworks, theories, concepts become useful. So in your world, in executive coaching, there are lots of theories of human motivation. Right. And these theories of human motivation speak to 
why is it that some people stay in their jobs and why some people leave? Structuring the problem means, let's look at what those theories have to say about employee attrition. And then what we can do is we can identify the potential motivational causes of employee attrition. And that's what we mean by structuring. What structuring forces you to do is to identify all the possible solution pathways, all the possible causes, because then doing that, you overcome the confirmation bias, you overcome the temptation to jump to one solution and ignore others. You overcome the temptation to reason by analogy. In other words, only pay attention to your past experience. So you use theory, you use concepts and frameworks, in this case about human motivation, to decompose the problem into potential solutions. The third step, which is solve, is to take those potential solutions and then to evaluate them, to collect data, to test, and then to find out which ones are actually operating in your situation. So to go back to the example of the attrition problem, this gentleman immediately jumped to, oh, of course, it's, it's a pay problem. In other words, we're not paying our employees enough. Mm. Competitors are paying them better. That's why they're jumping. And what we did was we spent a little bit of time talking about wh what other potential causes are there for people to leave jobs. One is financial. One is benefits. One is work conditions. Yeah. One is colleagues inside the organization. Another is advancement for career opportunities. So by sketching out these potential solution pathways, we then had the opportunity to say, well, let's look at these inside your company and find out which one is actually causing your attrition problem. Once you know, the solution becomes apparent. So that's what we mean by solve is to, to collect data and, and evaluate those potential solutions. And then once you've solved it, as we were just talking about with the, the sugar story, you've got to sell it. You've got with a persuasive and compelling sales pitch, which in the book we provide a, a story structure. It's called the pyramid principle. Mm -hmm. So again, the 4S method is, is a disciplined, rigorous method. And then each step in that method has a, has a set of tools that uh, are useful for, again, stating the problem, structuring the problem, solving the problem, and then selling the solution. And we're talking with Dr. Corey Phelps, tri-author of the book, Cracked It, Cracked It. I love the title. By the way, it's by um, Paul Grave Macmillan Press uh, is the publisher. Uh, how to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultants. The book is fabulous. It's an amazing read. And we're in uh, the third or second trimester of our program talking to him about the 4S method that he describes in this book, how overcoming the pitfalls that we fall into when trying to solve problems in our lives and in our business and in our careers even. It doesn't matter. These, these problem-solving techniques uh, that he's discussing in here can apply to anything. And he makes a great point in the book about that at the end of the book when we talk about it, that, you know, problem-solving is problem-solving is problem-solving, okay? Just because it's a business problem or it's a personal problem doesn't matter. The, the, the methods that are described in this book all absolutely apply. And, uh, and Corey will vouch for that. I know he will because uh, it's, the way he, it's the way this book was written and which makes it even better because it can apply. And so I want to move to when we talk about the stating the problem here. Uh, and, and we could talk about TOSCA. And, 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 and I mean, it's a neat little acronym, right? And I, I enjoy the acronym. And, and I mean, if you want to, we can go into that a little bit. If you feel like that's going to be, be, be better for the listener or 
Should we, should we, does that help them, you think, a little bit more when it comes to stating the problem? If we go through that before we talk about structuring and some of the, some of the pitfalls we can actually run sure. into structuring the problem, maybe? Yeah, sure. We can, I can quickly talk about sure. Tosca. So Tosca is, it, the inspiration for the Tosca framework actually comes from the Giacomo Puccini opera, which came out at the turn of the 20th century called Tosca. But so we tell the story, the synopsis of Tosca in the book, and we link it to this framework. And the acronym stands for, the T stands for trouble. And that's really where we tend to start with defining a problem. In other words, something tells us that something's wrong mm -hmm. if it's an organizational problem. So we have indicators. So the example I used about the gentleman in the workshop last week, he said, we have an attrition problem. And I said, well, what, what's the trouble? What tells you you have an attrition problem? I said, well, he said, it's 20%. So in his mind, that was too high. He'd like it to be 5%. So clearly there's a gap between his desired state, which is 5% attrition, and the actual state, which is 20% attrition. So the T is list out what all the indicators are that you have a problem. We call those trouble. The second uh, letter, O, stands for owner. Who owns the problem? Is it you? Or are you gonna be solving this for someone else? Understand who the owner is because that then mm, identifies good. who's gonna be a key stakeholder, who's gonna be held accountable for the quality of the solution whose view you're going to have to incorporate earlier rather than later in the problem solving process. So O is for owner, S is for success, which is for me probably the most important piece of defining a problem. In other words, can you state specifically what success is going to look like? Right. Because if you can't, you don't know if you've actually solved the problem effectively. Push people on is, is basically using another acronym, SMART, so if you're going to state the success, then do it specifically, do it in a way that's measurable, do it in a way that's actionable, reachable, and, and of course, time bound. So right. what's success going to look like and when? <clears throat> excuse me. The second, or excuse me, the, the next letter is, is C uh, in the framework. That stands for constraints. What are the things that you actually have to live by? What are those resource constraints? Could be financial, could be people. What are the regulatory or legal constraints in terms of solving the problem? There are cultural constraints, right? We have cultural sure. values, we have cultural sure. norms, things that we cannot touch when we try to solve a problem. So let's understand what the constraints are because those are constraints are gonna inform our search for solutions. And then finally, actors, that's the A. Who are the stakeholders? Who, who are the people that are gonna be interested in the problem solving process and affected by the solution? What we're really trying to do with the task of is to drive towards what we call the core question. Framing your problem statement in the form of a question that will then guide your search for solutions. Mm -hmm. So again, coming back to the example of the gentleman with the attrition problem, his core question was, how might we reduce attrition in our company from 20% to 5% within the next two years? So he had a very well-defined core question that then helped inform his structuring of the problem, his search for solutions, and eventually the selling of that solution. So the Tosca framework is just, as you said, it's an acronym, but what it does is it imposes some discipline on you. It says, stop and answer the question, what's the T, who's the O, what's the S, what's the C, and who are the A, and then state your problem in the form of a question. I loved, I, I, I got to tell you, Corey, I, I loved the, the, this whole thing, the four S's and Tosca. I, I just, it really, really, for me, it kind of simplifies the, and I know it's not simplifying, but it did simplify me in my head 
of how to better organize it. I guess that's why it simplified it for me to organize how I think about solving some of the major problems I have to deal with, whether I'm, you know, am dealing with teamwork issues or whether I'm dealing with an executive issue with the CEO or CEO or something like that, whatever that may be. Uh, it just to put it in that framework was really cool. Now, what I what I here's the thing though when I when it came to structuring, there was a part of me that I don't know if I was mad at you or was mad at me. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't sure who I was mad at. <laughs> okay, and, and here's why. Okay, so you know, being a guy who's uh, got a science background in psychology, right? I am a hypothesis driven problem guy generally first. Okay. But then I think of myself, well, no, sometimes I'm an issue tree guy. And then, and then I go, well, you know, but I, I kind of am a design thinking guy. And I was kind of mad because I'm like, oh, well, why can't I be all three? Why, 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 why do I have to fit into it? And I was kind of mad. I was going, is it me or is it the, or is, or is it, who is, who should I blame here? Or is it really true that maybe we, do we do automatically just encompass all three of those things or do we tend to lean one direction or another? I, I think people tend to lean one direction or another. Okay. I think people that are really strong analytic thinkers, probably such as yourself, because you come from a science background, right. they tend to lean towards the hypothesis driven approach or the issue tree approach because hypothesis driven approach I'd say is, is pretty much human nature. What the hypothesis-driven approach says is that we come up with a story that we basically think answers the problem right. statement. So again, to go back to the example of the gentleman with the attrition problem. So his question was, how might we reduce attrition from 20 to 5% in the next two years? Right. His initial hypothesis was this is essentially a, finan a compensation problem, which means we have to pay people more. So he had a very specific hypothesis in his, in his mind that he jumped to. Now, this is the downside of hypothesis-driven thinking. We often tell ourselves a story that makes sense of what right. we understand the problem to be. Right. My employees are leaving too fast. I think they're going to my competitors. It must be because it's more pay. And then, boom, we immediately jump to a hypothesis. I think it's because we're not paying people enough. Well, then the solution becomes very clear. We need to pay people more. Right. So the, the, the downside of a hypothesis-driven approach is that we often ignore other potential solutions. Right. But what a hypothesis-driven approach says is the following. What must be true in order for this hypothesis to be true? And that's the thing that I think a lot of problems don't do. So in, again, in the example of the attrition problem, his assumption was he wasn't pe paying people enough. So I asked him, well, what must be true in order for that hypothesis? In other words, you're not paying people enough, which is causing people to leave. What must be true? And he struggled for a second and he thought, well, let me think about this. What must be true? Then he realized, well, it must be true that we actually are paying people. Okay. Mm. Do you have any data on that? Right. No. Could you collect some data on that? Sure. Right. So he basically deals with a headhunting firm. They've got insight into what other organizations are paying. He can look at reports that are being done in his industry. So I said, look, one of the things that you want to do before you merely assume your hypothesis is correct is to actually go try to validate it by collecting some right. data. Right. Because what you may find is you may find that it's not correct. In other words, there's not much of a pay differential between 
what you're paying people and what your competitors are paying people, which then says you got to consider another hypothesis. The, the, I would say a, a potential trap of the hypothesis driven approach is we don't test our hypothesis. We merely assume they're true, not unlike what Ron Johnson mm -hmm. did at JCPenney. So I think it's human nature to be hypothesis driven, but to also not want to test those beliefs right. and as a result, put in place solutions that are misguided. The issue tree approach, what's great about that is it imposes a tremendous amount of discipline on you. It forces you to basically see beyond your initial pet solution and use frameworks and theories mm -hmm. to consider a much broader solution base. The downside of issues is that they're time intense. Yeah. They take effort to do. Um, generally speaking, they take more than one person. Right. We all have our own favorite pet frameworks and our pet theories that we're comfortable with using. And the problem with that is that our theories and our frameworks limit how we come to understand a problem and what the solutions are. So it's really useful to get diversity of perspective. People that have different frameworks, different theories than ours, because then we can make a broader, deeper issue tree. We can consider more potential solutions. Right. Those first two approaches are, I would say, very theory-driven, very top-down-driven uh, approaches. Yeah. In other words, in order to develop a hypothesis pyramid or an issue tree, we have to have a lot of insight to what the potential causes of a problem are. Right. There are problems that we often face in our work, in our lives, where we have absolutely no idea what's causing it. Right. That's where we talk about in the book going for an inductive approach, a bottom-up approach. What that means is if your customers are abandoning you and you have no idea why they are abandoning you and shopping someplace else or buying from another organization, that means you don't have a theory, you don't have a framework. You can't develop an issue tree. You may not be able to develop a hypothesis pyramid. So maybe the best thing to do is to go try to understand the problem from the perspective of the people that are experiencing it. What I mean by that is if it's a case of your customers are leaving, you don't know why, go try to understand those customers are facing. Try to step inside their shoes. Try to see your service, your offering from their perspective to try to get a much better understanding of why they're leaving. What that really means is you're going to construct a theory by observing individual consumers, individual customers. That's a more bottom-up approach, and that approach can be useful when you don't have much in the way of theory. You don't right. have the much in the way of, of research that you can use to develop issue trees or hypothesis pyramids. See, and, and, and by the way, we're talking to uh, Dr. Corey Phelps, author of the book, Cracked It! Exclamation point. Uh, how to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultancies brought to you today by inline business brokers and advisors. Uh, and here's the deal, folks. Uh, inline brokers and advisors have literally helped thousands of clients in the sale and purchase of their businesses. They are world-renowned, uh, internationally known. When it's time to sell your business, uh, I'm just telling you, contact the professionals at inline business brokers and advisors. You can learn more at inline.com. It's E N. L-I-G-N.com, and also Linda Craft and Team Realtors. If you're, when it comes to buying and selling home, they are the experts. Clearly, they've been around for over 30 years. They have legendary customer service. 
they really do when it comes to real estate. They know the ins, the outs. They are the total professional team all wrapped up to one package and they can help you anywhere in the world. You can learn more by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T.com. So, Corey, one of the things, I, okay, so here's the thing about, because my background is in science, but I'm also in psychology, I love this whole idea of the design thinking pad. Because when, you know, most of the problems that I deal with in an organization are human problems, mm-hmm. right? And, and to me, sometimes, because I, I can't always do cause and effect. By the way, that's, boy, can we open up a cause, can we open a can of worms here? And when we talk about people believing that correlation is cause and effect, there is yeah. nothing, as, as, a former, as a former psychology professor, there is nothing that irritates me more. I'm just, I'm, this is my soapbox moment, folks. Corey's going to have to just deal with it. There is nothing that irritates me more than when people believe that correlation is causation, okay? And I use the exact same example that he used in the book. Here it is, folks. All right, here's the truth. This is a fact. I am not making this up, and Corey will verify this. In Boston, Massachusetts, in Boston, Massachusetts, as ice cream sales increase, so do the number of drownings. And I'm going to ask you people out there, why do you think that happens? And you know what I get back from a response from all my wonderful psychology students? Well, it's because they eat too much ice cream and they get, they're lactose intolerant and they end up drowning, right? Because you, we keep trying to imply cause and effect and correlation, but there is, an, there is an extraneous variable in the midst of this called summer, right? What yeah. do people do in the summer? They swim more and they eat more ice cream. So it looks like it's a one-to-one. It's not, and it drives me up a wall. It, it just, I, I, I'm sorry, Corey, I didn't mean to go off like that, but it just, it, and, but you make such a big point of it because we have a tendency to kind of be misguided within our own framework of thinking that things can be, you know, we correlate things in our head. It, 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 matter of fact, you might remember, I don't know if you, you, I'm sure you talk about this a little bit in, in your, when you're, as your professor and in, in talking about all this stuff, but illusory correlation is extraordinarily real, which causes a huge problem for us because we believe that correlations exist that are ca- that we think are all of a sudden causal that really do infect and become viral within our problem solving framework. I completely agree with that. And it's, it's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, so my background is uh, tr- training as an economist. I, I have the same sort of science driven approach and the idea is, yeah, correlation is not causation and, and that can lead us astray with solving problems because if we've we've done an issue tree for example and we said here are the potential causes if we're only paying attention to correlations right then that means that we're not really understanding what the problem is so i'll go to the the attrition case it, it could be for example that if we observe people leaving and then we said, well, it is in fact a correlation between the wages that are being paid by this gentleman's company's competitors and people leaving. And we could immediately say, hey, there's a correlation. That must mean as a result that the reason they're leaving because they're going to be paid for, uh, by these companies. There right. could be, to your point, a third factor that we haven't been considering. Right. And that third factor could be the quality of the workplace conditions. Right. You might think that, well, companies that can afford to pay more 
also be willing to invest in a better workplace in terms of the quality of the conditions. And as a result of that, what's really going on is people saying, I'm leaving, not so much because they're going to pay me, but because it's just a nicer place to work. So again, that means we need to be even more careful about laying out what are the potential causes, because then it forces us to consider these, these extraneous, uh, in the world of science, omitted variable problems. Because again, what we're really trying to get down to is the root of what's caused this gentleman's attrition problem. Right. If we just said it's a correlation between other companies pay and our people leaving, could jump to the conclusion that we've got to pay people more. No, maybe what we should be doing is investing in improving our work conditions right. and paying people more actually is not going to affect it at all. So it could be a very, a much more expensive solution. How do we better understood the problem? And, and, and by the way, in, in terms of this, one thing that I've ever learned and now, now it's just you and me having some fun here, uh, but before we move on, but the, the truth of the matter is every time I've looked at any of this stuff, money is very rarely the reason why people leave. It's very, very rarely in my experience has it been a money issue. It is, there's generally something else that's happened, whether it's bad management, it, it, you've, and you know, you talk about this, you know, what can you find in the commonalities of people, you know, that have left? Because if we take a look at all the people who left and we start looking at the data of why they left, where, what, were they in the same position? Were they, we could start putting them in the boxes that you talk about, right? We can, we can categorize and start trying to put categories and start trying to solve this going in a different way. Rather than just coming up with a hypothesis, well, what do these people have in common? What, what, you know, where did they go? Did they all go to the same place? There's yep. so many questions to ask outside of just leaping to, well, we're just going to pay them more money. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. More money is not the answer. You don't even know. Why don't we, why don't we find out? Why don't we kind yeah. of do some research on this and, and, and determine? And then... This is this is where it, this is where the psychology guy comes in, and right because all of a sudden he loses his hypothesis testing, and he starts going, well, I wonder what 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 they were feeling and thinking when they were when when they left. What what it, was it about? Maybe we find a commonality in a particular position that people are uh, having so much attrition, you know. And then you you sit there and you talk to the people who are maybe currently in that position, and you go, you know, tell me about this job. What, what is it that you like? What is it that the pieces that you dislike, right? And then all of a sudden we find out that has nothing to do with anything else. It actually has something to do with the way the position is organized, right? Because yeah. it, it, or they feel lost. They don't feel like they're part of the company or they don't feel like they're contributing. They feel like they have no purpose, right? That nobody is ever knows that I even exist, right? That, that they feel that the, the person who's pushing the broom has more um, people have more knowledge of than I do in that position. And then all of a sudden you realize it's not the money at all. They just need some yep. attention. Yep. Right. And I yep. think, I, I think that, I think that starts to come into the play, right. With the design thinking pad here. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the design thinking approach to problem solving starts with a really simple premise. And the simple premise is don't assume no or understand the problem mm. at all. Right. It pushes back against the temptation to say very quickly, oh, I know what's going on here. I know the reason that my employees are leaving. And then again, jump to this solution. Instead, assume you know nothing. Assume you have a theory. So you don't know anything about human motivation. So there are no theories, no frameworks. Mm. 
if you don't know anything, to your point, you've got to start with the people that are experiencing this problem. In other words, the people that are leaving, as well as the people that are staying. And then what you want to do is you want to, and you said this word early on, you want to be able to empathize with them. You want to be able to see and understand the world from their point of view. In other words, you need to be able to step into their shoes and experience the organization, the work climate, and so on, that then help them justify in their own mind why they would leave the company right. and go somewhere else. And token, the people that have decided to stay in the company. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to develop a theory from the perspective of the people that are experiencing the problem. That's the design thinking route. And it's a very different route to problem solving than hypothesis pyramids and issues, which basically starts from the premise. We know a lot about what the potential causes of a problem are. Let's put them all on paper in an issue tree or a hypothesis pyramid. And then let's go collect some data and find out who's actually operating. So right. they're two very different approaches. Um, but again, design thinking starts with the premise. Either I know very little or I could learn a lot more by trying to step into the shoes of users or customers, or whoever is experiencing the problem. And one of the stories that we tell in the book, um, I know it's before we started the conversations, the story that, that you like is the story mm -hmm. of, of Doug Dietz at GE Medical Systems. And this goes to the point of how important empathy is in helping people that are problem solvers, people that are designing solutions, how empathy can help you completely reimagine a problem and as a result come up with a highly novel, highly innovative solution. So if you'd like, I could walk uh, the listeners through the yeah, Doug Dietz story that. really quickly. Yeah, let's do so, that. Okay. So Doug Dietz, as I just mentioned, uh, still to this day is an industrial designer for GE Systems based out of, he, he's based in Wisconsin. He has spent his entire career designing the external uh, components of CT scanners and MRI scanners, right? these big medical imaging technologies. And in a text talk that he gave a few years ago, he tells the story of an epiphany and a way that he had that allowed him for the first time in his career to step outside of his head as an industrial designer, designing these machines for patients or doctors, and see it from the perspective of a particular patient and how this led to a reimagining of it. So he tells the story that he had just finished designing a MRI scanner and he went to a local hospital where it had been installed because he wanted his baby, as he describes it, mm. in practice. So he's talking to the, excuse me, the MRI technician, and the technician says, step out, I've got a patient coming in. So he steps out into the hallway, and he looks down the hospital corridor, and he sees in the distance a young family. So he sees um, a mother, a father with a young child. He thinks it's about seven years old. So he sees down the hallway, and as they get closer, the father stops because the the daughter is visibly upset, and as we've talked about this, you can be brave. So he sees them walk into the MRI suite, and he follows in, and he sees the girl start to break and cry because she's overwhelmed by the environment. She MRI scanner from a seven-year-old's perspective looks very big, looks very scary, looks like, he puts it, a brick with a hole in it. 
it makes an extremely loud noise. If you're an adult, it's okay, you can tolerate the noise. But if you're a year old child, it's scary. Get sucked into this giant hole, it makes this, this terrible noise. And to top it off, you have to sit perfectly still for anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes, which is why a lot of kids have to be sedated. They have to be anesthetized in order to make sure that they're not so scared that they can't sit still. So through this experience, Dietz is able to see how a seven-year-old experiences an MRI scanner. And he has an epiphany. He said, I never realized that these things were these big, scary monsters for kids. So he realizes he has to understand more about childhood development that would lead young children to be so overwhelmingly afraid of MRI scans, T scans. So he goes to a museum uh, in Milwaukee, museum, and he starts to work with the people at the museum, and he starts to better understand children. And another light bulb goes off. And the second light bulb that goes off is, you know, if you create an adventure for a child and you put them as sort of a starring in this adventure, then kids will cooperate. They will play. And what he realizes is can make an MRI scan or a CT scan venture for a child, what I can probably do is get them to sit still long enough to be scanned without having them to be sedated and thereby reducing the risks of sedation that kids face and reducing the need to sedate kids and the trauma this causes their family. So these two events, the observing the seven-year-old undergoing an MRI scan and then going to the museum, the Children's Museum uh, in Milwaukee and observing kids playing lead to the creation of what is known today as the GE Adventure Series of MCT scans. One adventure series, because there's different versions, is a pirate's version. So you walk into the MRI suite and what you hear is you hear pirate music being played. You <laughs> The MRI scan has now been turned into a pirate ship. So the giant hole is the tiller, uh, the steering for the boat. There's paintings uh, of uh, first mates on the wall. Mm. The MRI technician is dressed up as a pirate <laughs> with an iPad with a fake parrot. There's a script to the whole thing. Right? And the child is the star of the show. So the child becomes immersed in this pirate adventure and part of the script is, okay, now that you're going to steer the ship, you have to be perfectly still. So what happens is they've created an adventure environment for the child. And what happened was places that the adventure series have, have been installed in the United States, sedation rates for kids have dropped dramatically. So they no longer need to sedate kids because kids are now part of an adventure. What this story is fundamentally about is the power of empathy. For the first time in Doug's very long career, he was able to see, he was able to experience an MRI scan, not from his perspective as an industrial designer, but from the perspective of a patient, of a seven-year-old girl. That led him to reframing the problem that he had thought about, which was how do I design an MRI scanner that's gonna maximize essentially the hospital's return? Reframe that problem is, how might I change the nature of the MRI experience for a child in a way to reduce their need to be sedated? And it led to a very novel solution. So again, it's the power of empathy. 
our ability to get outside of our own heads, because at the end of the day, when we solve problems, we're usually in our heads mm. and get into the heads of the people that are experiencing the problem. And in Dietz's case, it was the seven-year-old girl. Once we can make that change of reference, that change of perspective, it often opens up ways to see the problem that we never imagined before. And as a result, it opens up opportunities for solutions that we had never imagined before. So as we say, a little bit of empathy can go a very long way in solving complex problems. Awesome. Awesome. We're ta- we, we, we've, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Corey Phelps, tri-author of this book, outstanding book, by the way, cracked at how to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultants. Corey, do you know that you and I have been on the phone for over an hour? Yeah, I, I actually just looked at the time, but time I, has flown by. It has just absolutely flown by. I don't know. I don't know what happens on this show, but it's like we're going along, and I'm, the next thing I go, oh my gosh, we where, where, did this, where did it go? Where did this go? We we the 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 book has been so good, and the stories have been so great. We and folks, we didn't even get to the the point of sol- the point of solving and selling. You know what that means? Buy the book. <laughs> that's what it means. It means you got to go buy cracked it and, and, and find out the rest, you know, whether it's Kindle version, the, the paperback or whether it's this hardcover uh, book that I'm holding in my hands right now that you can't see for those of you who will be listening on podcast or who are listening on podcast, the book is called cracked it and uh, it's available on Amazon. It's also available at local bookstores uh, everywhere. Uh, matter of fact, if you're in Canada, it's chapters. Um, and by the way, I love chapters bookstores in Canada. You guys were so, are so good to me and my book sales. And so I want to thank all my Canadian friends um, all over Canada for buying my books and, and you'll be buying Cracked It too. And um, also, you know, of course, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and all those stores, they'll have Cracked It as well. So Corey, um, last thing, it's not going to do with the book, but I ask every one of my friends, and I'm going to call you friend now because you've, we've spent over an hour together. And I always ask my friends, if you could leave uh, my guests that I, I, they're my listeners, but they're my guests really that I'm so grateful for. If you could leave the guests with a new direction when it comes to problem solving, what would that be? Well, I think it's something my father taught me when I was very little. Um, he said, always reserve the right to get smarter. Hmm. And I think when we solve problems, what we should do is always reserve the right to get smarter. Don't jump to that first solution that comes to mind and lock in on it and defend it against the naysayers. Reserve your right to get smarter, which means listen to diverse others. Seek out contrarian positions. What you want to do is you don't want to zero in too quickly. You want to expand your possibilities. So reserving the right to get smarter is a way to do that. That's awesome. Can you stay with me for just a couple more minutes? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Folks, this is the show. The book, Cracked It. Uh, fantastic, right? We. He walked you through the pitfalls of problem solving. He walked you through the four S's of problem solving. We only got through really two of them, really, at least on some level. The book is outstanding. It is going to be a toolkit. This book, Cracked It, is going to be a toolkit for you to solve whatever problems that you may have in your business, your career, your life. I don't care what it is. It it, it applies. It's absolutely an outstanding read. I loved reading this book. It's going to be now something that sits with me so I can use it as a reference piece as I go, continue to consult and, and work with groups and people. And even as I speak, it, it's, it's a powerful thing. I'll tell you one thing that, that for those of you who speak out there and who think that PowerPoint is all that to be that, he says, stop it. 
Okay. That he says, stop it. Be brave. Be, I'm quoting him. Be brave. You don't have to have the PowerPoint. It's a crutch. Okay. Get over yourself. All right. You can do this. You don't have to do it. It's, it's a beautiful part of the book. But folks, I want to just thank all of you. Uh, Israel, again, thank you for, wow, you guys have been so kind to me. Great Britain. I appreciate you very much. Uh, the 17 countries that are downloading the show on a regular basis, thank you so much for doing that all over the world. It was never an expectation, and I am so grateful uh, that you are doing that. And um, always feel free to contact me if there's ever somebody or a topic or subject matter that you would like to hear that um, we can help provide you a new direction with as well. It's the show. His name is Dr. Corey Phelps. He's been fantastic. As I say to you folks, be inspired because when you're inspired, you can inspire someone else. And if we all did that, we can make this world an amazing place. I will see you next week with another fantastic guest. Ciao, everybody. Find your strength.